it, it's no coincidence that we're talking about this film right after all the president's minutes. Like, this is so many films tried to be all the president's men. So many people have tried to recreate it. Uh, you know, some quite literally, if in the case of Steven Spielberg. This is the real spiritual successor, I feel. And it's interesting that the reason it's a spiritual successor is that aside from being, you know, it looks, the newsroom looks just like the Washington Post, you know, there are shots of, of, of the two cops running through the newsroom that look like they were storyboarded exactly <laughs> from all the president's men running. There are a lot of nods like that, but there is something a lot cleverer going on because... All the President's Men is about a a time in history when we lost faith in the institution. But Zodiac is is a film for our times because it's not about the loss of faith in institutions. The investigation in All the President's Men is is something we put our faith in. It's a very comforting thing. It's why it's so rewatchable. We take great faith in these people doing their job. In Zodiac, the investigation is the chaos. The cops cannot get straight who has which jurisdiction, who has a fax machine and who doesn't, who got which prints in the mail and who didn't. In all the presidents, men, we lose faith in the system. In Zodiac, we lose faith in our ability to investigate the system. And that is a much scarier and much more profound statement. And it's one for our times where it seems like it certainly feels that every norm is crumbling away in 2020. That's what Zodiac brings out in 2020. It's the fact that you cannot put faith in the newspaper reporter or the detective or really anyone. You know, everyone's doing their best. It's it's a representation of the chaos that life is and there's, there's nothing that we can place our, our faith in fully because the institutions are only as good as the people who run them and the people are flawed. Paul? What? I cover crime in Vallejo. Yeah, I cover crime in Vallejo. Just one do that. I, I like I like puzzles. I do them a lot. And he gave himself a name. This is the Zodiac speaking. Several crime newsmen are wearing lapel buttons reading, I am not Paul Avery. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You gonna catch this fucking guy or not? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Does anyone think the suspect warrants further investigation? Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and that introduction was award-winning screenwriter and auteurist podcasting mastermind, Lee Zachariah. Joining me today to help discuss the horrific and iconic opening moments of Zodiac are Edgar Award-winning author of She Rides Shotgun and screenwriter Jordan Harper. I think you can encapsulate both Fincher at his best and worst when I say he's probably one of the best people who uses digital blood. Staff writer for Slash Film and host of the terrific 21st Century Spielberg podcast, Chris Evangelista. There, I feel like there's a direct like jaws riff there because it's it's the guy and the girl and they're alone and the girl ends up getting killed and you know it's it, i feel like that's definitely intentional or not it's it's definitely there absolutely and writer critic 
an author with bylines at the New York Times, the playlist Vulture, the editor-in-chief of the independent film publication Crooked Marquee, and host of the Fun City Cinema podcast, Jason Bailey. It, it so beautifully replicates 70s cinema throughout, but it feels like either he felt or James Vanderbilt felt or a producer or studio executive felt that you had to have those last couple of scenes to give us something resembling some opportunity for audience satisfaction and closure. So, why Zodiac? That's a great question. Let's step back for a moment and use the invaluable resource that is wikipedia.com. For those unfamiliar, the Zodiac Killer, or simply Zodiac or the Zodiac, is an American serial killer who operated in Northern California from the late 60s, early 70s, and his identity, for the most part, remains unknown. The killer pronounced his name in a series of taunting letters to the San Francisco press, primarily the San Francisco Chronicle. These letters included four ciphers. The Zodiac murdered five known victims in Benicia, Vallejo, Napa County, and San Francisco, respectively. The confirmed killings took place between December 1968 and October 1969. He targeted young couples, and two men survived. He also murdered a male cab driver, and the Zodiac himself claimed to have murdered up to 37 victims. But what is it about this case? Why does it have such an effect on people that during quarantine, even 51 years later, three people, an American, a European man, and in fact, an Australian by the name of Dr. Sam Blake, collaborated over the internet in the middle of quarantine to solve a 51-year-old cipher from the Zodiac? Why does it capture people's imagination? First, let's compare it with our previous projects. Heat is the ultimate LA crime epic, a deeply human drama about purpose, about kinship in contradiction. Heat is a nexus for Michael Mann and movie making, a rediscovered 70s style marble sculpture as a new generation of 90s filmmakers emerge with a scrappy intertextual collage style. All the President's Men is the ultimate grind. It's the movie that finds the roadwork to mastery of journalistic pursuits and thereby its very execution role models the gears and the grit required to press up against titanic forces. And tangentially, Inherent Vice, like Chinatown or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is a deeply nexus film. It's an autopsy for an age, scribbling the connections of symptomatic decay on a wall for us all to make sense of. Journalists, police, detectives, criminals, obsessives all. And here in 2020, the year that feels more like a decade than a rotation around the sun, the clarity of knowing that you're in a moment, such as those moments reflected in these films, as it's happening, is a really strange thing. So perhaps it's through the portal of a film that intersects a moment like this that takes the time to watch the odometer on characters tick over in sort of real time has an unquantifiable allure. In one of the many commentary tracks on the special edition of Zodiac is James Elroy, renowned noir author of books like American Tabloid, LA Confidential, and he explains it like this. I'm an obsessive type myself, and the truth is I've always stayed short of the abyss. Mm -hmm. I possess that kind of circumspection. Yeah. Graysmith didn't go homeless. Graysmith held down a job and relationships with various women, however tenuous, mm -hmm. during the course of this thing. And he put it together. He read, 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 made some interviews, and made connections that nobody else made. Yeah. And God bless him. That's just the thing. It's not merely standing on the edge of the abyss and the sublime allure of its power that draws you in. It's an obsession as a kind of possession. Zodiac 
is a comforting obsession. For some reason, I share Elroy and this film's affinity with the abyss. Before we get started and deep dive on the opening scenes of this movie, I'm going to have a little chat with my very good friend Jordan Harper, an extremely talented writer and screenwriter, about some preliminary thoughts on Zodiac. You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about Zodiac is my general distaste for serial killer fiction and storytelling. As somebody who considers myself like a real connoisseur of of crime culture or cultural explorations of crime, I should say. Uh, and I've always been a little hesitant to really get into serial killers past that adolescent bloom that I think a lot of us go through. Um, because there's something I find deeply fascist about the art surrounding serial killers. Um, because so much of stories about serial killers are about control. And, you know, not to start talking about heat a lot, but heat is, is a yin and yang between somebody who is about control and somebody who's about freedom. I, to me, the bank robber as an archetype is, is about anarchy and, and personal freedom and rebellion. Whether or not that's the truth of what bank robbers are, that's the truth of what bank robber fiction or storytelling is. And to me, you know, when you make a serial killer movie, what do you do? Well, you, you strip a girl naked and you tie antlers to her head and pose her body and, and it, it's about control in a way that no real serial killer um, is. And then the other side of the story is a cop, which is obviously about control. And, and, and so I tend to shy away from that. That's not a, a blanket statement. There's tons of serial killer stuff I like, but Zodiac is a movie that is not about that. Yes. Or if it is, it is about the frustration and lack of control that, that people feel um, but they never achieve it. There is no sort of final control that is put at the end of the film. And I do think that is what makes it interesting. Um, and I will say, just as a blanket statement at the top, I think this movie's pretty good. <laughs> I am not somebody who, who <laughs> thinks this is a perfect film. Um, I think it is far more satisfying on an intellectual level than it is an emotional level, perhaps because it, it, it's so dogged and refusing to embrace the kind of tropes that make um, even, you know, a, a total top class serial killer movie like Silence of the Lambs effective is, is the, you know, that it is trying to make you feel something. And I'll be honest, and I, I don't want to just ramble here. I'd love to hear what you think. I don't know what Zodiac is supposed to make me feel other than a vague, <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, ooh, that is frustrating. Oh, that is interesting. Um, but I, you know, other, other than a few scenes, including, you know, the one we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about, I don't know what huge emotional event somebody would experience watching this film. And to me, a movie that can't do that is, is difficult for me to proclaim as a great movie. Yeah, it's. I think it's really interesting that you put it in that way, and I, I think that that's part of the lure of Zodiac because for me, it's. I think it's the propulsion of this scene that we're about to talk focus on, and the propulsion of the scenes around it. This opening kind of twenty six, twenty seven minutes of this, what is ultimately about a hundred and sixty minute epic, is they're like these wounds from your past. They become like these dark and dogged traumatic experiences. And the movie then rolls into this series of recovery and it ends up being this vacant recovery. So for me, I, I get what you, I get what you're saying. Cause it's like when you're pitting any movie against Silence of the Lambs, which is like 
one of the most perfect movies that's ever been created. And Jonathan Demi, one of the most deeply uh, affecting emotional filmmakers of all time. It's really hard, like just, just in, in contrast, cause they're doing completely different things. But I think what I find in this movie is I think that that question is almost part of the emotional drive. Like, what is this doing to me? Why do I keep needing to watch this thing? It's not satisfying. It's like trauma. It's these moments are traumatic. These things hurt my insides. They make me unco- deeply uncomfortable. This mo- and, and I think what I think you made the great point is there's something grotesque when you diminish the impact of life being lost. Um, and in 2020, there's never been a year where people have diminished life being lost more. And, and, and this movie what I, what I'm struck by is that life is lost and it's so violent and it's so affecting that for the rest of the movie, for me, these opening scenes make you live with a trauma and watch people try and process and resolve that trauma. And there is a lack of resolution. I think that the emotional thing for me is that then what happens, especially for me watching this film, is like you start to think about the trauma in your own life perhaps and start doing those internal projections and then mm-hmm. it's about how you engage with it. But that's what I think is the the strange cosmic thing in this movie. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. That it, sh- it shouldn't work just structurally. And someone you like you who is so... Um, vastly more aware of like how important structure is to both television and cinema creation and just storytelling in general, like structurally it shouldn't work necessarily. And it's no, and it's not as overtly as affecting because the things that Fincher is doing is like telling you these stories of violence with the most, you know, rigid focus on the verifiable facts of what happens. And then they, they happen and then you are, you have to contend with it. And I think the rest of the movie is just contending with these things. And so that's, that's, I think, and again, I don't know the evolution of this project is going to be fun because I don't actually know where it's going to end up, but there is a cosmic quality to this rewatchability and this obsessive quality that this movie inspires that I guess keeps you going back to these traumatic events, looking at the lack of resolution and seeing how people can find peace with the lack of resolution. Are you familiar with the idea of a negative flavor? No, as opposed me. to a bad flavor. Uh, a negative flavor is something invented by food scientists. And what it is, is like, say, uh, I, I read this in the context of Doritos. Uh, the New York Times once <laughs> did uh, a very good article about Can I just say, science. I love yeah. everything about this conversation so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are something like, and don't quote me on the, the number here, but there's something like five distinct phases of flavor when you eat a Dorito. And all of them are determined by food scientists and built to happen in a sequence. And the final flavor that happens in your mouth when you eat a Dorito is what they refer to as a negative flavor. And again, that doesn't mean a bad flavor. The negative flavor is the flavor that makes you eat another Dorito. It is a flavor in your mouth that, again, is not a bad flavor. It's not like a nasty aftertaste because that might discourage you, but it is a flavor in your mouth that your brain thinks what this flavor requires is another Dorito. And so, you know, it's some somewhat similar to uh, the idea of uh, syncopation in in pop music and the the concept of earworms, Mm. which is um, basically syncopation. And sometimes even like the idea of catchiness comes from the idea 
of a math problem your brain is trying to solve but can't because yeah. it is unsatisfied in the song. Um, and, and I think in later Queens of the Stone Age stuff as well, especially um, Josh Homme's got that obsession with creating like negative zones in songs. Like it's mm. so propulsive. He creates the math equation and the rhythm and the beat of the song and then just kills, like changes the beat or like mm. creates a negative space and you're sort of tapping along and then there's nothing. And then you're like, oh, and then something comes back in and it's like, <laughs> and it's, and it's not even an even beat. It doesn't come back like mm -hmm. in the, in the same sequence it like will interrupt itself like one fraction of a beat faster. And <laughs> there's this weird thing that your head does is like you become addicted to these gaps and you're like, God damn it. That's, I don't know what it is, but there's something about it. There's something odd about the, uh, maybe it's just cause this was when I was reading about earworms or it was around the time that um, single ladies by Beyonce came out and yeah. you might never have noticed this, but next time that song comes on the radio, um, listen for the high-pitched trilling sound that occurs in that song. There is, it's not a melody, it is just like a <laughs> that keeps going and, and you almost don't notice it, but I'm convinced that is one of the like parts of that song that makes it so catchy that now that I've even said that song to you, the it's in my head. And, it's in and my head. Done the, it's in my head and if anyone's listening, it's in their head too because it's playing right now. And... Um, I guess, uh, you know, this is all very far afield of saying that I think maybe that's what you're saying, but the fact that the movie is unsatisfying in, in, a, in a basic way, and intentionally so, is what makes it propulsive, this idea that if we come back and keep studying it, which is actually the journey that the people in the, in the film go through as well, um, I buy that, and I think that that is, it's, like I said, I do think it's a very good movie. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to, to, to like, um, say it's not a good movie it, it's um it just doesn't you, you, quite make you, it to me five stars you um, know our modus operandi jordan i never sure. want to just have a singular conversation with people who are overwhelming fans or something i think part of the scrutiny is to sort of unpack it and mm -hmm. there are definitely going to be elements throughout the show where we're not just effusively like praising the film but some of it has to be that internal examination because I think that that's partially what I'm doing like in this entire process is having a look at what makes this movie sort of more, more even than heat or all the president's men that preceded it. What makes this movie mm -hmm. that kind of quality? Cause presidents has, you know, a restoration of faith moment and heat has uh, an undeniable existential musing moment mm -hmm. as well as being just incredibly entertaining um uh, and and but this film doesn't follow the same rules oh no not at all and now let's dive into the film the period credit signs are two titanic movie houses warner brothers the home of stanley kubrick the director that tarantino has repeatedly called fincher our generation's answer to and paramount whose studio rebirth is so tied to the period that zodiac is set it feels right that we're joined together in chorus to see this project realised. Fincher and his team, though, stumbled into the shorthand for the audience. What you're about to see is of a time, and in honour of a time. Let's start my chat with Mr. Jason Bailey. I think a lot about, I listened to the audio commentary once for uh, for the first Bourne movie, for the Bourne Identity with Doug Liman. And I, I don't know why I remember this so clearly, but he talks about how, you know, they just lay in, I think it's like the audio of like a ship. Uh, it's like, 
it's like sounds of the sea because like I, they open with like him, you know, him being pulled up from from, you know, where he's gone overboard or what have you. And in that audio commentary, he talks about how initially that when they first showed it to a preview audience, that audio wasn't there. There wasn't really any sound happening under the Universal logo, which is a longer one. It comes around the planet, etc. And the audience, he said, was just immediately like fidgety, like sitting there in silence was just like not, you know, it, it, he, he it's almost like he lost him immediately and had to get them back. But he also said a thing there about, so, like, so, OK, so I can put music there or I can put in just this little bit of sound effect that will like put them into where we're going to take them, that will sort of set them on that course. And that was a moment where I really realized that. You, you can't waste a single second in terms of setting a scene and getting an audience ready for what's coming. Yes. And I think that's what Fincher is doing so brilliantly, even in something as simplistic as the, the studio logo movies. <laughs> yes. The little animations that open those film that that open this film because like I've always liked it when like filmmakers are having fun with with the logo with the, with the logo movie because we've seen these forever we're familiar with them we're we, and so when someone plays with it it like first of all it establishes this is a playful movie you know but also uh sort of a, a winking self awareness of the movie so like I love how the Paramount mountain is used in Raiders and I the love Paramount, the Paramount Raiders is the iconic moment when you see that yes. they're playing with it it's like oh it, it feels yeah. like you can relax okay yes this is good and same and same thing with how they use the Paramount Mountain in Coming to America it's yeah. like oh yeah that's brilliant you know what I mean <laughs> yes. so so like so tinkering with the logo to begin with like I'm in I'm interested I want to see what where you're going but then this thing that started to happen around this time I feel like with using the throwback logo, with using the old school logo to set a mood either of just of a period or of like in Superbad, like you mentioned, of just a spirit. You yes. know what I mean? So like Superbad, as you mentioned, same year, 2007, opens with that old Columbia Torch Lady logo, the one that like that I think when I see it, I think of Tootsie. <laughs> like that's the sort of like early 80s. That's the movie I've seen the most from that period. I think so that, like, that's I, the one that I uses. think of Ghostbusters. That's one of the first things I think that's of. A, that's, <laughs> that's a good one. Right, too. right around that's a good that time. One too. And so and so it's also like it's a, it's a, it's a really uh, kind of easy play for nostalgia. Like yeah. if you can start a contemporary comedy by making your viewer think of Tootsie and Ghostbusters, like your work, like your, you're already half well your on work the is way. Done. Half your work yes, is done. Yes. Yes. Your audience members like, Oh, I'm ready for a Ghostbusters slash Tootsie style <laughs> comedy. Here we go. You know? So the, the idea of opening, you know, with that sort of, with that seventies era, paramount logo right the sort of like the way that the cloud falls and the you know that's that's a specific choice and then to go with with an older warner brothers logo now he went with like the late 80s yeah. like the sort of goodfellas era one which i like don't 100 percent agree with like he should have gone with the Saul bass gone like, with the argo the argo warner yeah, brothers yeah yes yes or and uh magic mike, magic uh, mike. soderbergh did it too in magic mike uh, again, like what great movie, you know, like if you can start Argo by making your viewer think of all the president's men, then hey, you know, um, and same thing with this, I would have thought. But anyway, the point is he's immediately setting up for you that these 
Like, it's not just a cute move. It's not just a wink. It's not a joke. It's not a novelty. He's telling you that this is a story and that this is a film. This is a story that's set in the past, but also that it's a film that is grounded in the aesthetics and the storytelling pace and style of these sort of 70s and 80s studio pictures. Yes. Like that, to to use something that you have to do, like a studio logo, yeah. and to find a way to make that a commentary and a nudge and a, a sort of a, a, a waving flashlight on the runway to the audience to know what's coming. That is using every second of, of, of yeah. your screen time to accomplish something in particular. And really, like, I have such a clear memory of the first time I saw this movie. I saw it in a theater in New York City, opening day, matinee show, you know, sitting down, fourth row, eating, you know, my snack or whatever. And, like, when those came on, I really... Like I sat back and I was like, oh fuck, it's on. Okay. All right. <laughs> and like you have to be a very specific kind of movie nerd for though for that something that minuscule to have an effect on you. Yes. But it did. Like I immediately was like, oh, okay. And it's such a wonderful way to signal the idea that like that Fincher's not making a cutesy period piece. He's not gonna like wink at us with, you know, uh, bell-bottom pants and, like, flared collars or whatever. Like, he's trying to make a movie that looks like it was made in 1976 and put in a vault somewhere, you know? Like, and that's that's a very... That's a very deliberate choice, and that's a very different kind of filmmaking than just, you know, oh, it's... You know, we're going to have fun with the costumes and the cars, you know what I mean? Like... (laughs) And and all throughout, like it's not like he's shooting a 2007 movie that just happens to be set then, like top to bottom, this is a movie that is paced like a 70s thriller, that is shot like a 70s thriller, that is cut like a 70s thriller, and that is cast and acted like a 70s thriller, and all of those are are, are discrete, separate, distinctive things that all entail a variety of choices and ideas and personnel and are all brought together in a way that that is fluid and makes sense both as a film and as a storytelling yes. situation. But what I think is really interesting about 2007 in terms of this phenomenon that we're talking about is that like you know, you mentioned Superbad which came out that summer. This came out in March and then in April Grindhouse came out, right? Yes. And so it's not just that we're talking about the influence of the influence of 70s cinema and sort of homage. Like there was a real, I think, wonderful obsession with the ephemera of 70s cinema. Yes. Like that's a huge part of what Grindhouse was about for like, again, which I saw in the theater, like in Grindhouse <laughs> form, like the like all of the sort of like scratchy film and the bumpers and the fake trailers and all of that was like, it wasn't just about like, this is a movie that's like movies we, that, that we loved and saw in the seventies. It's, they're saying like, no, this is this, we're going to do everything possible to replicate the experience of seeing a movie in the 1970s when we saw movies like this. Yes. And there's an, there's, there's a feeling of that in Zodiac too. Like he's not going as far as, as scratching up screen or missing reels or any of that's of, of, 
of those like really really decisions that that work for Grindhouse <laughs> but wouldn't work for Zodiac. Let's no. not let's not fuck around about it. But I don't want I don't want a missing reel in the middle of this fucking. I movie. don't. <laughs> I don't. But like the the opening logos are that kind of thing. They're like they're repurposing ephemera of '70s cinema to put us into that mood. Yes, and to to recreate the '70s theater going experience to 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 make us feel the way David Fincher felt when he saw all the President's Men in the theater, as an example. Yes, we sweep into the night, an aerial shot over the bridge. The hearth city lights are complemented by a chorus of fireworks. We're taking this bridge from our time to theirs. It's the Fourth of July, nineteen sixty-nine, a fulcrum in the American experience. In a fluid move from the air to a detached reflection of suburbia. Framed from inside a car window, a warm and welcoming slice of life. It's a perfect distillation of post-war prosperity. Where have you been? I've been waiting since seven. Get in, I have to find fireworks. Let me drive. Get in, I haven't eaten in- Here's me picking up a chat with Chris Evangelista. Yeah, that, that opening shot is just killer where it's like the fireworks going off all over the different areas. And then that that one shot where it's the camera pointing out the, the passenger side window as it like slowly creeps down the street and it's like, it's, it's just you're instantly like hooked it's like holy shit this is looks amazing <laughs> like it looks amazing and you're just pulled into uh just the, this the vibe of the movie is like instantly ominous like even though it's like a celebratory thing it's like ah fourth of july everyone's out and having a good time there's just this instant air of menace the way yeah the way that camera is like looking out the car window and and just the way the characters are acting the way when uh, they get they just go out and they go to that restaurant and they uh, instantly like leave. And it's just like, it's just slowly setting up that like something is very wrong here. And if you don't know the history of the case, if you're not like, you know, obsessed with serial killers, you don't know what the Zodiac <laughs> killer things were about. You're really not going to know what's going on here, but you're instantly like clued in that like something is very, very wrong and it's, it's not going to get any better. <laughs> no, and it's, I love what you said there about these are spaces that are safe. Right. And that are like, you're going through a suburban area on 4th of July. And so in Australia, the equivalents are like New Year's Eve where everyone's out and there's fireworks and sparklers and, you know, everyone's lights are on and music's blaring from lots of houses and people are playing in the street. And it's just, this should be a completely safe space. And then the other sort of sacred American space, even as an outsider in Australia is like a drive-in diner. Like there's something romantic about it all the way back to like American graffiti or, you know, you only have to look at like days and confuse. They're these great, there are these like beacons of light and hope and joy. And the way that this movie opens through these spaces are ultimately terrifying. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it, like, there's none of that, like, even though it's, you know, it's the sixties, there's none of that like nostalgia, like, ah, look at the, look at how cool everything looks in the sixties. It's just like, it's just, I mean, I love that it starts at night. It starts in like, it's just instantly mm. dark. And, and, and I also love, one of the things I love about just the movie in general is that 
this isn't like the first Zodiac killing, but Fincher did this thing and the script does this deliberate thing where they only portray crimes that had at least one survivor. Yes. Because they're only interested in, in, you know, telling the truth, quote unquote. They're only like, you know, this is a very, you know, the other reason I think that I love this movie so much is like, I'm just a sucker for, for newspaper movies. Maybe <laughs> like we got to get to the truth no matter what we got to uncover the truth. And this script and this movie is very Some, interesting. Something you might say that we share. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, this, this movie is very interested in getting it right. Like it doesn't yes. want to take liberties and like, yeah, it's taking liberties in the sense that, you know, it arrives on a suspect and zeroes one suspect out, even though there's no, you know, there was never like a trial to say that guy did it. But the movie is very interested in not sensationalizing yes. things. And I, so I love that, you know, this could have opened with, you know, the first actual Zodiac killing, but instead it, it cuts to the first one where someone survived. Like we're, we're not even like getting... The, the whole story. We're instantly jumping into a story that's already ongoing, but we just don't know it yet. And I just love that little detail that it's only interested in showing these things where there was at least one person left to say what happened. Mike's nerves are expressed in this flashy tick, opening and shutting a Zippo lighter. D is beautiful, a picture of a woman. Mike looks like a weedy kid, insecure and jittery. His nerves can barely handle the fact that he's been made to wait. The whole time this scene unfolds, the static camera inside the car provides the POV. It is both D and this omniscient postcard view. There's a handoff though, when we look back into the car and materialize Mike's view. The camera has created another presence. As Mike enters the car, Mike and D make their way out of the street. Something has been left behind. The American ideal has been developed in front of our eyes and we're now moving past it. There's such an ache being left behind in that moment. The passage from the 60s into the 70s, from a time of innocence to a time of fear and manipulation by serial killers, must pass through a 50s drive-in diner. There's a moment as they creep through the drive-in looking for a spot when Dee postures up and catches something in her rear view. It's too crowded. The glance is less than a second, but the rigidity of her body cannot contain her discomfort. The cagier, already frustrated Mike is concerned with the move. Do you blame him? Once they arrive at their spot to talk and listen to music, Dee turns on the charm and reassurance to comfort Mike. Here's a great observation from Jason Bailey about the sound of the radio in this scene. I hadn't ever really noticed how beautifully the music and the radio is used, driving and listening to the radio. And it really tied to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to me. Like, he uses the, the, the way a radio sounds in a car, which is a very specific kind of listening to music, and the way that it can envelop a night when you're just driving around. That's, I don't know, I, when, I, when I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that felt like something I hadn't seen before in a movie. And then I watched this again and I was like, no, I'd seen it once before in this. It's really lovely. The, like that little sequence of, like, of her just driving down the street and the fireworks are going off and her picking him up and then them going to that drive-in and, it's, and, and the way that the, that the, that the music and the, the DJ sound in that car. I don't know. It's it's really lovely. Sitting? 
listening to music, talking. You seem weird. Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. It's July. How many shirts are you wearing? I'm cold. You're cold on the 4th of July. When those other parkers prank them on the way out with firecrackers, Mike must flex his toughness. He shouts, Fuck up and die! Such a strange moment. Such a strange turn of phrase. And the invective and the teen tone of the statement is laughable. Dee can't contain herself. What? Fuck off and die? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> In just a moment, we'll be back with Jordan Harper to talk the relevance of Hurdy Gurdy Man and its use in the movie. But let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Okay, so we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge Rick and Morty on French Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, I changed my location to France, refreshed Netflix, and voila! See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason I use ExpressVPN is to watch shows and it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag. You can stream HD, no problemo. Hello, Criterion Channel. I'm looking at you, kid. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices. I definitely have it on my phone, but you can get it on consoles, smart TVs, and more. You can watch what you want on the go or the big screen wherever you are. Now, if you are a fan of One Heat Minute Productions and all that we do, I know you want to help us out. So please visit our special link right now, expressvpn.com slash o. HM, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash OHM. And now, back to Jordan Harper and the Hurdy Gurdy Man. Well, you know, like most people, I discovered the song Hurdy Gurdy Man through the Butthole Surfers, uh, their, their <laughs> album PO'd. Uh, where they they covered the song. Now, when I was in high school in a, a big... The Butthole Surfers, do you know them? The, I do, yeah, I do. Psychedelic trash rock from Texas. Um, one of the great bands of the 90s. Um, and the thing about the Hurdy Gurdy Man is when you hear it in the context of the Butthole Surfers album, which is as weird as rock music gets, <laughs> I had no idea it was a cover. And it sounds exactly like a Butthole Surfer song. And so when I learned it was a cover, I was like, I've got to hear the original to see how much the Butthole Surfers made it weird and creepy. And it turns out they didn't do shit. <laughs> <laughs> that Donovan's song, The Hurdy Gurdy Man, is got to be the creepiest song that has ever broken the top five of, like, of the pop charts. Yeah, a huge pop song. 
a huge pop song and it is it is truly an unnerving song to listen to and uh and interestingly enough and i just learned this today from from wikipedia while i was preparing to talk to you the first movie to use the hurdy-gurdy man yes dumb and dumber <laughs> and they use the butthole surface version um and then it got it started getting used after that it's in sneakers it's been in a lot of stuff since yeah. but yeah yeah it was a, it was a dumb and dumber which has a, a weirdly good soundtrack for the movie dumb and dumber um <laughs> also has xtc's peter Pumpkinhead. um great song uh anyway uh donovan is a really interesting character that um you know, is almost better known for some people by having such famous friends. You know, he's in that uh, 1965 Bob Dylan documentary. Um, yes. The name of which just fell out of my head. Uh, is it Don't Look Now? Yes. And, uh, you know, he actually wrote big chunks of Hurdy Gurdy Man while he was in India studying uh, with Maharishi with the Beatles. And in fact, uh, George Harrison helped write the lyrics to this song. Um, it, it has a lot of George. This is this song has George fingerprints all over it. Well, the other big uh, place that it has the fingerprints and, and really one of the essential parts of the song is the tambura, which is the Indian instrument that uh, that really is used to great psychedelic effect. And you're right in a very George Harrison way in this song. Um, but that's not the end of like the weird fame level of this song when you look at it apparently donovan says anyway he wrote it for Jimi hendrix um which really yeah when you hear it yeah obviously Jimi hendrix wouldn't have put the weird spookiness no. on it but boy that would have been a good song to hear i would have oh loved i mean he would have given it like this like spiritual magnetism like mm -hmm. it would have been propulsive it would have been like a chant a chant like some of yeah. his songs can turn out to be whereas this is just like a this is the most perverse prayer it's weird <laughs> it is weird and uh it is very weird and then and this is you know i i haven't done a tremendous amount of, of research about this but when i when i looked into it nobody's 100 percent sure because it was like the late 1960s and they were all on truly stupendous amounts of drugs. <laughs> but amongst the people credited for playing on this song, Jimmy Page is credited with guitar work. Yeah, I mean, look, um, if you just need an extra session guitarist, why not Jimmy Page, you know? Well, but the interesting thing is we're not done here. John Bonham is credited with the drums. And John Paul Jones is credited with um, bass and production at least partially, and all of these are partial. There was also some jazz fusion guitarist who's also credited with the guitar, but if you listen to it, you can hear the Jimmy Page. So essentially, if, it, if this is all correct, <laughs> pre-Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin is the backing band of this song, um, which is incredible. Um, Pre-Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Yeah, Donovan's just like, oh, we shouldn't make a band with these guys. Let them go off and do whatever they want. Yeah, I don't care about these people. I'm, I've got to go record Mellow Yellow. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I would say this song, used the way it is in this film, where it adds an obviously creepy moment, a lot more creep. And it is a very one-for-one one choice. It's, it's, it's a good choice. And it's the best song choice in the movie, I think, by a country mile. Um, and, it, and, and it's deployment. I think yes. that song choices are, 
incredible in movies and there's deployment and look, you, you know, coming over a scene or how it's done, but it is, it is on the radio. I think it, it's, it's interesting because I think when people describe Zodiac or when they think of Zodiac, they really think of the other murders. What I mean is I think people say, well, he, he films the violence so matter of factly and it's unaffected and you just get the horror of the close-ups of their faces and, and it, it, he's not manipulating you where, well, first of all, I think film's job is to manipulate you, but like um, this does all of those things. It takes all a of very it. creepy song. It, it, you know, deploys it. Like you said, the music swells. It, it is no longer just playing on the radio. It is now, it is left with, it's not diegetic anymore. It's now non-diegetic is taken over into the, the soundtrack of, of the film itself as the puffs of blood the not too terrible digital puffs of blood are, are uh... it's probably the best digital blood because that and and actually one of the most profound and smart uh reasons for doing it is when they were shooting this slow motion they didn't want to cover the actors mm. in blood sure to reset yeah so if you're talking about like how to reset, you know if you're doing the scene and you can look at the dailies and with digital photography you can literally just do playback almost instantaneously they're watching it happen and they're going, okay, we want to do that again, do that again. And imagine if, you know, knowing what Finch is like, imagine if like they had squibs and had to bloody that car and then clean the car or have alternate cars or have alternate, you know, you know, dresses and things like that. I think that that would have just been insanity. Absolute insanity. I think you can encapsulate both Fincher at his best and worst. When I say he's probably one of the best people who uses digital blood. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That, yes, he does it very well and you barely notice it unless you're like me and and are angry about digital blood. Um, But it is, it is a a limit of his perfectionism and and his his need for control, again, to bring it back to this concept of control. um, That, and by the way, what you just said is the argument that everybody like me hears in a production meeting when I say, I don't want it to be a digital squib. Can't we use a real squib? Well, we have to reset and it takes time. It costs real money. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is uh, the way of the world now that everybody uses. I'm sure that there are digital squibs in the Irishman. I, I can't really recall, but I'm, I'm sure there are. Um, but actually bring up the Irishman. Um, the hurdy-gurdy man in Zodiac is the second best usage of Donovan in a movie. And I think exploring the parallels and and differences between this usage of Donovan in a movie and the best usage of Donovan in a movie, which of course is in Goodfellas, is incredibly instructive. Because by my way of thinking, if you asked me to name the greatest use of a song in cinema, I would probably say Donovan's Atlantis during the killing of Billy Bats in, in Goodfellas. Yeah. I, I think it is incredible and it's incredible in a way that really brings Scorsese's genius to the front because the Hurdy Gurdy Man is a creepy song. Yes. To use Hurdy Gurdy Man in a scene to make it creepy, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's great. But it is, it's, it's one for one. It's a creepy song. Use, use. I don't think it's an unfair statement to say that some of the most profound bits of score or needle drops that are in movies are how they are offsetting and undercutting potentially what you're seeing because yes. and then and then there's this weird cycle i think it's that whole to go back around to something we've talked about which is that whole negative taste vibe which is it's doing something that makes you notice it yes 
and then it contends with what you're seeing at the same time and then they complement together and if you can sometimes get the experience where there's a fusion of those two things it does it takes it to another level that it wasn't going to it wasn't going to hit before that's exactly it and that's where you know donovan's atlantis is a song about really wanting to date a woman from atlantis um, that's what it's about more or less you, you read it it's like boy i wish i could swim under the ocean and date this lady from atlantis but if you don't pay attention to the lyrics, which my firm belief is that filmmakers should not pay attention to the lyrics of the songs um, and just listen to it as a thing that is happening. It is an emotion and a feeling. It is a profoundly sad song. And the murder of Billy yeah. Bats is a profoundly sad murder. And what it does is it takes something without pulling back on the violence, without hiding anything or denying all those things, what the idiots say when they talk about Scorsese makes violent movies that are just about violence. It doesn't get away from that. Joe Pesci breaks a gun against the guy's face in this scene. And yet this, this song that you barely even notice is playing makes it perfectly clear that this is a tragic act. And it's not just tragic for Billy Bats, but it, 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 it lays Joe Pesci's insecurities bare. It's, it's a sad crime. And I really think that Donovan's song has so much to do with it in that scene. And to me, and I'm just, I just bring it up because I think it's interesting to, to use this artist to compare the two, that is where Scorsese rises above. Is It's an inspired choice that nobody but him would make. It's, you know, period correct, as is the hurdy-gurdy man in this scene. Um, but it wasn't the first song somebody would pick. It yes. was, it's the thousandth song somebody would pick for that <laughs> scene. And it's so much better than all of those. Um, and, and so I really do think, to me, when I, I think about Fincher as, you know, supremely talented, but, you know, sometimes when his name gets pushed into that next level conversation, I, I, I'm resistant to it because I don't see that kind of work from him. I don't see that kind of inspiration from him. Uh, and and I, I think that this, this is a great moment to point that out, even though, to just go back to the scene now, it is a profoundly disturbing scene. It is, it is uneasy. It's uneasy from the moment that she picks him up. There is mm -hmm. so much backstory that we don't get. Their relationship is so odd and, and it's never explained. But like, you know, even the fact he doesn't want to get in the car when he first meets her, there is something strange about it. She goes to the drive-in and then doesn't want to eat even though she says she hasn't eaten. Are we to draw something from that? Can he, we don't know because she dies and we never get to ask her. And already, even though there are fireworks going off, it's, it's an uneasy feeling before, as you point out, you know, the song doesn't start until, you know, uh, is it when the firecracker guys leave, right? And they're like laughing about it. And she's like making fun of his like um, high pitched threat to the guy. <laughs> uh, Fuck off and die. and die. It's the greatest. It is. It's interesting when we go back to these ideas of, of negative tastes and unfulfillment that there is a mystery that is posed in that scene between the two of them that is never solved. And yes. we're never given an answer for why they're acting this way. You know, I, you get the idea they're not sleeping together, but perhaps they will be soon. Um, he's certainly aware that she has a husband and he is worried enough about what they're doing um, to ask, is that your husband? But they're clearly not in a sexual relationship yet because it, no. they're not acting like it. Um, and, you know, the violence in the scene, it is, it is matter of fact in its way, it's filmed straight on. It is, you know, it doesn't hide what it does, but it is by far in this film, the most 
um, like kind of stylized and and deploying all the different elements of film as you point out there's slow motion uh, you know it does again it's, it's an iconic song choice and I think uh, you know so our, our friend Jen uh, sent us a tweet recently where somebody made a, a make joke using the hurdy-gurdy man as the as the punchline and uh, it really is the probably single most iconic moment in this film and the song choice is, is just spectacular and uh, the fact that Dumb and Dumber got there first, well, hey, that's just how it goes. That's just, you know? just how it goes. We're all um, beaten by Dumb and Dumber at some point. <laughs> Dee is doing everything to maintain intimacy in the scene. But a car approaches. The camera clocks its arc. And it parks menacingly close. In some ways, I'm reminded of that great moment in The Dark Knight Rises as Bane places his hand on the shoulder of Ben Mendelsohn and says, Do you feel in charge? The menace of this car's presence is debilitating. This is a quote that comes to mind. Often, the worst and most embarrassing part of the film is the accidental, the uncontrolled, the amateurish failure which exhibits its unachieved intentions. And the finest moment may be a twitch of the actress's cheek achieved on the 50th take. There are accidents which look like art and there is art that looks accidental. That is a quote from Pauline Kael from her essay, Is There a Cure to Film Criticism? From I Lost It at the Movies, film writings from 1954 to 65. Chiara Moriarty's performance as Darlene Farron, D, as I've been calling her, achieves a moment with the essence of accidental. She's wrestling and twisting her mouth in preparation to answer, but it's as if her braces are shackling her very expression. Despite not knowing he's behind the wheel, this is a serious man, creeping in from the shadows. The Mustang's muscular angles cry out that there's an assertive beast waiting to pounce. Stay in the car. Let's have a quick chat with Chris Evangelista about what he thinks are overt Spielberg tones in this moment. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there. I feel like there's a direct like jaws riff there because it's it's the guy and the girl and they're alone and the girl ends up getting killed and you know it, 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 i feel like that's definitely intentional or not it's it's definitely there absolutely as the car rolls away ripples of relief register in d's face it's like this uncontrollable adrenalized chill kicks through it like a static shock but the entire exchange the car has been this black metallic beast the incongruity of this pairing finally makes sense. Darlene is a dissatisfied woman. She's rallying against her marriage with a series of different suitors. Mike in the car is one. The man in the other car is not her husband. But Mike isn't wrong to ask. This unflinching lens doesn't judge Darlene. The filmmakers want to make it clear that whatever people may have been going on in their lives, this shouldn't be the way that they end. We stay in the car, the ethos of the film. Crimes that were selected to be portrayed all have witnesses. Robust police reporting that allow those living people to be able to inform the details of what's being portrayed. D is glacial, porcelain. The braces don't diminish her glow. In the tension of the threat of the Mustang and its driver, she drained. The car driving away, D attempts to restore equilibrium. As she reaches out with delicacy and comfort, this scary moment should be precisely that, a moment. Her poise absorbed the noise of the screeching car returning. The camera turns on a swivel and tracks the car, blocking them in their space. Dee's nostrils flare. They chart her awareness, her familiarity. This could be bad. She knows that the threat of violence from this figure is real. Now, Dee. 
as the driver puts on a torchlight and walks to Mike's window. Mike is a white kid that would never imagine a figure of authority adopting the entitlement of a cop and inspecting their intimate moment would be a fatal threat. In 2020, there have been countless examples of black people in cars waiting to comply being gunned down. There's not a presumption of innocence. In the hands of the authority and the torch wielders is the same fear, anxiety and insecurity we see in Mike. They have become the ones who think, I'm not getting shot for this, and that means that someone else will. The fear of Zodiac's exit from the car is compounded on revisitation. His callousness is underscored by a further problematic reality. Law enforcement are there to protect us in the same way we imagine. Glare is binding. Time slows down. It's the Fincher Peckinpah moment. In fact, it's probably one of the truest applications of slow motion Peckinpah style violence that I can recall. Man, you really creeped us out. So many people looked at the use of slow motion in Peckinpah films simply as an aesthetic choice rather than its emotional heightening. The fragility of the human body in the adrenalized climactic moments can appear to those inflicting or experiencing it to be slowed down. Devastation takes on a grace that's hard to explain. In this moment, the filmmakers have calculated to the deepest specificity that the deaths in this film will not be glorified, but rather they'll recall and catalogue the scope of the devastating loss of life through a commitment to the documented reality of these killings. The killer returns to his vehicle, and for the briefest of moments, you feel like this horrific event is over, only to have him return, gum replenished and ready to kill again. The second volley were taking a more objective and passive view of the scene, their isolation and Zodiac's eventual escape. Here's Chris Evangelista and I talking about the chilling, unforgettable quality of this exchange. That first kill like sets the tone for the whole movie where it's just, it's, it's like this senseless, mindless murder that came out of nowhere that like, yes, we go into this movie, we know it's about a serial killer, we know people are going to get killed, but we're not prepared for this ultra realistic take. We're not like numb to that yet. And I think that's part of the, this movie's power where it, it's trying to do things that have been done before in different ways. You know, there are, you know, Zodiac isn't the first serial killer movie. Zodiac isn't, you know, it, it didn't break the mold, but it's do it's trying to journalistic, I guess is the word I'm looking for here. It's going for this journalistic approach where it's, it's giving you just the facts. Like it's not playing around with, with the continuity. It's not playing around with the details. It's giving you everything that happened as it happened in the best, most, historically accurate way it can. And I, I think a lot of a lot of violence in movies, not not to make me sound like a lunatic, but <laughs> a lot of violence in movies is kind of like therapeutic and kind of rewarding. Like we can, you know, yeah. uh, if there's like, you know, if I'm watching a horror movie and there's like a well-executed bit of gore, that's that's exciting. That's fun. It's like, oh, that looks fucking cool. And the <laughs> well, it, it, very recently in Freaky, when the killer gets a tennis racket and puts it through a preppy guy's head on either yes. side, like he rejoins it. I was like, that's cool. That's yeah, when I really well, cool. yeah, Freaky is actually what I was just thinking of because Freaky <laughs> has so, has some really great practical gore in it, which is like, I was like, oh, this is fucking great. This is like a a throwback to back when you know there's this thing that a lot of horror movies do now where like all the gore is like CGI and you can tell and it really yes. bothers me. And uh, Fincher actually uses like the blood in this, in this shot is actually CGI, but it doesn't matter yes. because he's not going for that 
therapeutic violence. He's not going for that cool gore. He's going for violence that is meant to upset you. Like he's not trying to be like, look at how cool this this action scene is. He's trying to be like, oh shit, this is disturbing stuff, and I, I want to disturb you. I want to unnerve you right out of the gate. And just the way the whole the shooting is done, like after that slow motion breaks, there's that that uh, wider shot, and then yes, the Zodiac killer walks away, and he even like comes back and keeps shooting, and like that's such a cold like uncaring bit of of uh, you know violence that just like ugh, it's unnerving From the vantage point of the bushland, a gaggle of keys hurry past the camera. A policeman arrives at the scene on a motorcycle and sees Mike. Through gritted teeth, wincing, a goatee of blood, gesturing to the vehicle, to D. There's been a venomous accuracy from the killer to D. The score retreats slightly and the anonymous phone call to Vallejo PD settles over Mike's agony. The details... The stats. The damn scoreboard of this killing. Emboldened to also confess his last murder too. Vallejo Police Department. I want to report a double murder. Yeah, I have your if you name, go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, the public park, you'll find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. It's not a fade to black, it's a cut. That cut to black moment is the moment for Zodiac that reflects the American ideal extinguished. The currents of this moment are going to cascade through popular consciousness. The media is going to make this psychopath mainstream. The boogeyman under the bedrock of San Francisco. And some closing thoughts from Chris Evangelista and myself. He's gone on to express like three major things in one movie because, and I think that that's part of the allure for me to, to approach this because it's not just, you know, an, an obsessive cop who's actually a good cop, you know, Tosky, even though he's, you know, his hubris gets to him as we see later in the movie um, played by Ruffalo. It's not only a very, like a fascinating blowhard journalist who's just like, you know, Robert Downey Jr. at his most extremely fun and unhinged to watch, like, you know, just complete fun or a nerdy obsessive played really, you know, really beautifully and on point by, by Gyllenhaal, who's obviously got his own magnetism and as an actor, but it's like a, like a really incredible performer. And you've got these three completely layered, huge stories in a, in a lengthy film, you know, in and told and executed. Plus all of the incredible side characters, you know, like uh, uh, there, I, I do entire viewings of this movie where all I'm watching is Elias Codius, um, you know, or Anthony Edwards, or you know what I mean? Oh. Like these these people who are just like Donald Logue, like they, you know, you get these different characters who have to interact and play in their same sandboxes, and they're just so fun and so realized full characters themselves, but. This movie is just, you know, it's such a monumental challenge to have these th- this three protagonist story that's layered into this one story in amongst this incredibly, you know, realized historical, I guess it's like an epic crime film. We're going to be disturbed. We're going to be inspired. We're going to be obsessed. We're going to, you know, show some great cop stuff. We're going to show some great, um, you know, inter- great interrogation scenes, great investigation scenes. And then we're going to show this sort of like, 
hodgepodge, you know, DIY investigation later, which has a, a great charm in its in its obsession and sort of uh, you know being a bit rough around the edges. I don't know what else I could say after that. Like you just like <laughs> summed up <laughs> the entire film and and why it's it's so goddamn special. But, but uh, yeah, it's just it, it's amazing to me that this movie works as well mm. as it does because if like one of those many things you just listed went wrong like the whole thing like capsizes and like yes it's like oh well that was a dud that was the first episode of zodiac chronicle sagittarius part one sagittarius part two will be dropping on december 31st be sure to subscribe to one heat minute productions and zodiac chronicle so you're the first to know about all of our upcoming episodes and projects if you can't get enough Unplugged Zodiac sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time, good bye.